welcome to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. My mama told me when I was young, we're all superstars. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me here again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald. I'm the host of Living Fearlessly with the Contact Talk Radio Network. We go live in 145 countries, 220 TV radio terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. Once again, I am joined not just by a phenomenal guest, but a phenomenal returning guest. My guest today is Mitch Horowitz. So, Mitch, I want to welcome you very much to the show for taking time out of your schedule and uh i just want to yes i just want to plug a little bit about mitch before we turn it over to unscripted dialogue as i always do with my guest so who is mitch horowitz well what i can tell you about mitch is that he is a writer and publisher with a lifelong interest in man's search for meaning the pen award-winning author of occult america and one simple idea mitch has written on everything from the war on witches to the secret life of ronald reagan for the new york times the wall street journal salon and time the washington post says mitch treats es- esoteric ideas and movements with an even-handed intellectual studiousness that is too often lost in today's raised voice discussions he is also the voice of popular audiobooks, including Alcoholics Anonymous and the Jefferson Bible and web series Origins, Superstitions. Mitch is Vice President and Executive Director at Tarcher Perigi, a division of Penguin Random House. So, Mitch, thank you so very much. It's really lovely to have you here again. You're one of my favorite guests. Oh, thank you. And thank you for all your support. I'm very glad to be here. Well, the difference between the last interview and this interview is that we're going to be talking about something is also near and dear uh, to Mitch's heart. And uh, we're going to be talking about the book Psycho-Cybernetics, which was written by Maxwell Maltz. So this was also sent to me by the publishing house. So I've, I've been delving into it. I've been thoroughly enjoying it because it's really very much up my alley of personal development mindset living fearlessly which is my brand and uh so mitch why don't we take it away with you i've I've got lots of questions i want to ask but maybe you can introduce the whole subject matter of who this gentleman is and what what your draw draw is to him specifically well psycho cybernetics is a book that was originally published in 1960 and i often tell people that it is really the first great secular exploration of new thought, new thought being the positive thinking philosophy that you'll find at the back of books like The Power of Positive Thinking and everything that really endorses using your mind as a stepping stone to achievement or success. Uh, New thought is a spiritual philosophy that has uh, roots that go back over a 100 years in this country that basically endorses the idea that thoughts are causative, but not everyone is comfortable with a spiritual perspective on life, and Maxwell Maltz was a physician, a pioneering cosmetic surgeon, actually, and he felt that New Thought principles were true, but that they didn't necessarily depend upon a theistic or spiritual outlook. So psychocybernetics was his exploration of how you can use visualizations, affirmations, meditations, directed thought, 
not to make things happen in your world in some kind of ethereal way, but to reprogram your sense of self, your self-image, your self-confidence, your sense of personal ability and aptitude. And he was operating based on his own instincts as a surgeon, actually. Uh, Maltz was performing cosmetic surgery early in, in the in its in its state as a medical practice. He was, as a surgeon, helping burn victims, helping people with deformities, not necessarily performing the kind of elective cosmetic surgeries that we are familiar with today. And he noticed that after he would improve people's appearance through a surgical procedure, very often their self-image also improved. But he also saw that there was a surprising fraction of people in whom self-image did not improve, and he wondered why, and he began to ask himself the question of what self-image actually is, after all. And he came to feel that self-image is ultimately something that is conditioned in us, that we program in ourselves from very, very earliest youth through the internal messages that we repeat to ourselves and accept as givens over the course of our lives. And he felt that we could, through great determination and effort, which I want to emphasize, Mm -hmm. uh, reprogram these messages and strengthen our sense of self. Uh, Along with that strengthened sense of self would come increased personal capacities, improved relationships, um, a willingness to take healthful risks in life. Uh, so that's the psycho-cybernetics program, and it's it's really exactly what you'll find in the business motivation culture today as it's represented by people like Tony Robbins or Zig Ziglar or Brian Tracy. They are really offering this kind of secular version of positive mind philosophy, which Maxwell Maltz pioneered in this 1960 classic, which is why I wanted to reissue the book so that readers had an opportunity to experience it in its original form. Well, I, for one, appreciate the fact that you've overseen and endeavored uh, to do that because I've, again, I've gained immense wisdom and insight into this book, and I can certainly appreciate and relate to why this would identify with some of the big top tier people who you've mentioned in the personal development world. So what I would like to know from you, Mitch, is, you know, how do you personally and professionally relate to and identify with Maxwell Maltz, either the man, his body of work, or both? Well, that's a great question. I suppose I identify with Maltz first and foremost because I feel that he was a person with a really rigorous intellect. He brought intellectual excellence to what he was doing. Uh, He wasn't just selling a product or a platform or kind of spinning out some speculative ideas. As a surgeon, he worked with many hundreds of patients over the course of his career, Uh, ultimately speaking, probably thousands of patients, and he was a keen and critical observer of human nature. He had an unusual vantage point as an early cosmetic surgeon from which to observe human nature. And I think his psychological ideas, even though he was not a psychologist from uh, by profession, were arrived at in a very meticulous, very hard-won fashion. And his book, Psycho-Cybernetics, attracted a remarkable range of admirers. He became close friends, actually, with the abstract artist Salvador Dali, who felt that the book made a critical difference in his life. Uh, the book was admired by people ranging from Jane Fonda, the actress, to 
the First Lady Nancy Reagan, all of whom had correspondence with Maltz. So he occupied an interesting cultural crossroads, and I think he was a person of great seriousness. He he asked himself a simple question, what is self-image, and can it be improved? And the answer he came to is, yes, it can be improved, and he provides a program of meditations and exercises that can contribute to improved self-image. And people often ask me, does it work? Does it really work? And the answer is yes, but it only works if you apply yourself to it with unreserved vigor. You know, the the psychocybernetics program, as he describes it in his book, which is really a program of guided meditations, it takes about an hour a day. Uh, You know, it it really involves two half-hour meditative sessions each day. And if you already have uh, a meditative practice of, of even you know, a, a morning and evening meditation, say of, you know, 25 minutes each, like I do, you realize that in our busy world, that's a significant amount of time. That's a significant amount of time in the midst of uh, work commitments, home commitments, personal needs. So if you're adding Maltz's program to a spiritual program that you already have, that's a considerable commitment. Or if you don't have any program and you're going to start a program, taking an hour out of your day is a real challenge for many people who have to juggle commutes and childcare and so on. There's no joke about it. You know, I, I, I want to be very plain with people. I believe in his program. I know that his program can work, but it, it, and it's a simple program, but it does require a time commitment. And I think people have to be very realistic about that. Otherwise, one is in for disappointment. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good to hear. And, you know, there's a few excerpts that I took from the book that really resonated with me. One that uh, blends quite nicely into my living fearlessly um, theme. And, you know, he talks about crisis brings power. And so I'm going to just quote what I read that really resonated with me. Common experience teaches that when great demands are made upon us, if only we fearlessly accept the challenge and confidently expend our strength, every danger or difficulty brings its own strength. As thy days, so shall thy strength be. Hmm. So what what does that mean to you in terms of where you think he's going with that? It's a very interesting passage you picked out, and, you know, that that resonates with ideas that you'll find in the work of Ralph Waldo Emerson, Frederick Nietzsche, this notion that we we grow through challenge and conflict. And we all hear that, and we think it sounds like a nice idea, but, of course, when we're in the midst of challenge and conflict, we want it to end as quickly as possible. Um, but looking back over our lives, and I, I think all of your listeners can probably relate to this, I think we all have to acknowledge that it's when we are thrown back upon ourselves, when we are forced to scrutinize our own internal resources to come up with the solution to a problem. It's only then that our lives take on some degree of refinement or that we get kind of calluses in our hands, so to speak, and we get strengthened in a certain way. Um, I think that, It's very important to remember that because every disappointment in life, even though it goes contrary to how we want it to go, does give us the opportunity to self-scrutinize, to become stronger, to become more independent. And I don't mean that in some light way. You know, I mean, sometimes we say these things and they sort of start to sound like pages from an inspirational calendar. But (laughs) if one can say these things 
and and hear these things with with maturity. Mm-hmm. That's that's where progress can begin. Uh, I, I I think I would feel very disappointed in myself if I looked back over all my relationships in life. I'm now 51 and didn't see any difference from where they were when I was age 30, for example. I do see diff- positive differences. I also see some nagging familiar problems, as I think everyone would looking back over the past 20 years of their lives. But I think that the growth comes from difficulties. The growth comes from challenges. It's how we're built. Ralph Waldo Emerson called it the law of compensation. Everything that faces us that requires us to surmount it in some way or another also brings with it commensurate possibility. And Emerson was absolutely explicit about that. And it's true. It's true. But it's only true if we if we approach that fact, that law of life, so to speak, with a very deep personal seriousness. Because there are times where we don't rise to a challenge and a dysfunctional behavior or, frankly, a cowardly behavior is just repeated. And I think we have to be frank that we lean in those directions as well. The question is, are we going to lean into a problem and let the law of compensation get underway, that law being that with surmounting a problem can come an improved personal or inner adaptability or strength. Absolutely. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And in fact, that's a segue into another passage that I I took from the book that truly resonated with me. And he says, just as a doctor learns to diagnose disease from certain symptoms, success and failure can also be diagnosed. The reason that a man does not simply find success or come to failure, he carries their seeds around in his personality and character. Yes, yes. I think we feel a sense of self-respect and we're able to treat others with greater respect when we've risen to a challenge rather than shirk it, rather than run away from it. And I think that figures into a point that, that sort of is resonating with me this morning, actually, and that is the importance of keeping one's word. You know, I work, uh, in addition to being a writer and a historian, uh, I work as a publisher. I'm assembling uh, my list of books that are coming out for a particular season next year. I have five writers on that list, each of whom have deadlines. I've been going down the list, as I do at the start of playing a new season, and asking each writer, are you all set? Are you on deadline? I've not gotten one simple yes from any of them. Wow. And I think that that's an issue in human nature. You know, if, if if one commits to a date, if one commits to a particular um, task being completed in a certain time, in a certain way, whether it's helping a friend move, uh, whether it's um, walking someone's dog for them, or whether it's handing in a professional project, I think that there's a sacredness and a self-opportunity in keeping one's word that we have lost track of in life. It's too easy to kind of hide behind emails or hide behind excuses of the busyness of daily life. Everyone's busy. I don't know anybody who will tell you I don't feel busy enough. But, you know, in the midst of all that, it's become too easy for us to regard everything as fungible. And the one thing that should not be fungible is a person's word. So Mm -hmm. if you commit to something... 
then for heaven's sake, commit to it. See it through. Unless you're facing a medical emergency or something of that nature, uh, see it through. And see what happens, because it not only helps the individual with whom you're working, but there are unforeseen ways in which it will help you as well, because it nets that self-respect that you won't know is there unless you use all the forces at your disposal to keep your word. It doesn't mean being rigid. You know, sometimes there are legitimate emergencies, but they're uncommon, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. Medical emergency is a legitimate uh, emergency. Um, but short of that, short of that, I think it's, it's, it, it, can, it can perhaps be the greatest therapeutic moment in a person's life to move every lever you can to keep your word. Well, let's talk about that for a couple minutes because you raised something that just kind of tweaked for me. So in in terms of what you believe, and I know we can't speak for people, uh, but you do know Maltz's work uh, inside and out. Um, and maybe you can blend this a little bit with your own perspective, not just what you think Maltz would have to say about it. But in terms of keeping one's word, you know, how would Maltz, do you, do you believe, or yourself, how, how would you distinguish the difference between somebody who discern, discerns the right to perhaps just change their mind uh, for whatever the reason might be, as opposed to somebody who changes their mind, but you know well enough based on pattern, behavior, character, that that comes from a place of choosing not to do the work. Or somebody who, as you say, is more inclined to cower behind easy devices in which to just bow out. That's a wonderful question. So really the way I'm hearing that question is when a person needs to make a change, how do you know when that's coming from a legitimate place of responsibility versus coming more from a place of a kind of mental or moral laziness? Um, I think that, first of all, when someone is unable to honor a commitment, they should be the first one to disclose it. Someone should have to go sort of chasing after them to find out. Um, I also think that when we have a commitment, whatever the nature of that commitment is, we should do everything possible to honor it before stepping up and asking for uh, a change or saying I can't show up or, you know, something like that. Um, You know, sometimes we'll ask other people to give us a pass. You know, would it be okay if I'm late? Would it be okay if I don't do this? Could I have more time? Could I, you know, whatever. We all know the familiar language. When we're asking that question, prior to doing our very best, that usually, to my mind, reflects a kind of ethical failing to own up to having given our word to somebody. So I I would say that to distinguish an authentic excuse or revision from a false one would mean, would really come down to a, a matter of timing. You know, am I asking for a change after having moved every force and lever available to me? Or am I asking it in anticipation of not being able to do it? Am I approaching uh, the other party with the information that I've failed? Or am I waiting for the other party to pursue me first, hoping that maybe I won't hear from them or that maybe they'll regard the obligation in as casual a way as I do. So questions of timing, I think, disclose whether a person
personal revision is authentic or inauthentic. If you've done everything possible and you find that you cannot complete the task, you failed, and you approach the other person to whom you've given your word, I think there's an authenticity in that. And look, you know, occasional failures do occur, accidents do occur. But I think that if the, if the timing, if the effort has not been put in, and if you make the other person come looking for you rather than willingly approach them, that probably does suggest a failing to keep one's word. Absolutely. Well, let's let's deduce that and let's extrapolate upon that a little bit further. And let's take it outside of the professional realm, although there's overlap, and, and speak more specifically from a personal um, and how that would tie into what you believe Maltz might have to say about that. So, you know, what if what if somebody is just scared of success and somebody has a tendency to self-sabotage? So let's say in the beginning of whatever it is they've embarked upon, uh, they show, you know, they show true character, they show integrity, uh, they show follow-through, but then it gets to a defining moment where they're going to cross over, up their game, and take it to the next level, and all of a sudden, bang, all of a sudden you start to see things that are uncharacteristic of them because there's an inherent belief that, what if I do succeed, or what if this does work out, or what if this person does like my work? Why do you, what do you, what do you think the block is with that, and how would one overcome that, and what would Maltz have to say about that? That's a very interesting question. You know, it, it, all of this really goes to the heart of what Maltz was writing about. You know, he felt that most of the time our personal failings were not due to a lack of aptitude, but due to a lack of self-motivation, self-awareness, realistic self-certainty. He felt that self-image was far more often the pivot point of our failure than a lack of ability. But you're raising a very interesting specific example, and that is this question of fear of success. I have to be honest with you. Um, I think people are more often fearful of failure. I think they're more often afraid of failure than they are desirous of success. I think they're afraid, in fact, that they're project won't be up to par and they self-sabotage in a sense because they're more fearful of humiliation than they are hungry for success. When you're tremendously hungry for success, I think that can overcome many barriers, but when your fear of rejection, humiliation, failure surpasses your wish for success, that's usually when people run and hide. I'm not so sure that people are afraid of success so much as they are insufficiently desirous of success and find it safer to run and hide when faced with a, a challenge that they fear they may not uh, live up to. Well, that's interesting because that also speaks to um, another passage that I took out of the book. And, you know, what was said there is that, and you touched upon this at the top of the hour, middle of our interview thus far, is, you know, language. You know, how we self-dialogue is so crucial for what we produce, tangibly, intangibly, yep. directly, indirectly. And so, you know, it was mentioned by Maltz that he said, you know, no matter what happens, I can handle it or I can see it through rather than I hope nothing happens. 
you know, so, you know, so it's, it's framing it, it's framing it from a positive perspective as opposed to already dialoguing with yourself as if you're setting it up to potentially fail, whatever that is. Yeah. 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 Uh, I think, you know, it's funny. Some of Maltz's insights were his own instinct on human nature, but they've proven validated by contemporary science. You know, I, I, there seems to be a neuroscience study or a cognitive study that fits everybody's point of view. So I don't like to talk about these things in some light way, you know, mm-hmm. as though uh, I can I can just reference at my fingertips a neuroscience study that demonstrates whatever it is I want to get across. But the truth is, we have seen, especially in the field of neuroplasticity and in other contemporary branches of brain science, that the our thought patterns do have an actual impact on the neural pathways in our brain and that when for example we are making a concerted and consistent effort to redirect ourselves away from certain kinds of destructive ritualistic thoughts through brain scans neuroscientists are able to demonstrate that eventually the neural pathways that are identified with certain ritualistic thoughts or behavior will themselves become altered as a sustained change in thought or behavior is undertaken on the part of the subject. So the fact is, as far as our brains are concerned, gray matter will follow and be rearranged by thought rather than just the other way around. So some of these relationships that we thought have existed between the mind and the body are being shown to be true in 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 the reverse of what we have sometimes believed. In, in other words, rather than gray matter giving rise to thought, uh, thought itself, something that we don't have actually a, a sound and, and consensus-based definition of thought itself will alter gray matter. So mm-hmm. a sense of, of realistic self-belief, not delusion that I can become an astronaut or, or you know an NBA star, but a sense of realistic self-belief in one's own capacity to perform the tasks that you've been trained for, that you've committed to do, that you've demonstrated an aptitude for, or that at least you've demonstrated some growth potential in, or a willingness to to learn more about, a realistic belief in one's own capacity can have effects far beyond what we might assume are possible. Maltz had an instinct for this, and in many ways that's at the heart of his psychocybernetics program, but we're seeing that validated by brain science today, and he would have been very heartened by that. He, Mm -hmm. as with many of the the pioneering writers in the positive mind field, he was truly ahead of his time. This was a man writing in 1960, and here we are now in the well into the second decade of the 21st century, and we are seeing the validation of his instinct that realistic self-belief not only makes one better able to perform, but it seems to be a vital aspect of performance because it will determine certain aspects not only of our relationship, but of the biology of our brains. Well, so I had two simultaneous thoughts come as you gave us and provided us with that 
lovely, insightful answer, which I appreciate. So if I'm not mistaken, Mitch, I think perhaps in our initial interview, our first interview, we talked a little bit about uh, quantum physics and we talked about the electrons, which I think, again, there's a connection and a correlation, obviously, as that speaks to, you know, thought patterns and how we process and how we self-dialogue. And as a result of how we choose to dialogue, what that manifests then into tangible results or outcomes. Um, which again is tied in when we talk about personal development that ties into manifestation and visualization. So, you know, what, what do you believe, um, Maxwell Maltz would have to say about quantum physics, electrons, and how we navigate our thoughts? Well, he would have been fascinated with the field. I think he would have found it a validation of his own insights. Uh, he grew to feel that how we think about ourselves, how we direct our thoughts, is determinative in a, a manner that goes far beyond what we were brought up to believe. If if you made the statement to him that thoughts are destiny, he probably would have agreed with that. Uh, he was very careful not to cross over into what he considered to be uh, magical or supernatural thinking about mm-hmm. the possibility of thoughts being this one ultimate super law under which we lived, but he did have an instinct that the new thought ideal, that thoughts are causative, was correct, and he believed that thoughts set in motion so many events in our lives that we very often get things, go places, achieve things, or fail at things based on our self-belief as to what is and isn't possible. He saw thought as, and the the human brain, as a kind of homing device, like a heat-seeking missile, and that if it were fed with certain data or information, usually in the form of things that we continually repeat to ourselves, that we unconsciously repeat to ourselves about our own abilities and aptitudes, our our brains in a in a subconscious way would orient us towards people, situations, opportunities, events that would tend to fulfill whatever the instructions were that we fed to ourselves. And the instructions could be very subtle. The instructions could be very indirect. The instructions could consist of judgments that we arrived at about ourselves from a very, very early age that may be incorrect, that may be require revision, but we're constantly and very subtly, unconsciously even, mm-hmm. repeating, reiterating these pieces of self-information to ourselves, and he felt that, in effect, we are programming our brains, which function like homing devices, to zero in on the circumstances, the personal traits, the events, the relationships that we tell ourselves are intrinsic to our lives. So he believed that thought was a very powerful and potent factor in our lives that we hadn't come close to assessing. It was much, much more than motor instructions it was it it was it was a a a, a kind of self determinative factor that we hadn't paid sufficient attention to the 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 specifically those thoughts that contribute to our self image so i think he would have been thrilled i think he would have been delighted i think he would have been deeply intrigued by 
some of the things that are currently being discussed and argued about within quantum theory today, certainly the things that are being discovered and talked about within uh, neuroplasticity and other branches of brain science, some branches of cognitive science. I think all of these things uh, either related to or confirmed his, his instinct, which really was that self-image is his destiny. And so based on that, uh, Mitch, do you believe then when we talk about, and you cited uh, the programming aspect, do you think the programming is only possible once one chooses to deprogram and deconstruct, or is it reprogramming? Is it a reboot uh, starting from scratch, or is there the process initially that needs to be underway in terms of deconstructing and deprogramming? Well, I don't think that he wanted us to spend too much time deconstructing in the sense that we we do or attempt to in psychoanalysis, for example. I don't think he wanted people to spend too much time sort of unraveling the onion of of our behavior. He believed more in issuing oneself new instructions, in effect. And, I mean, that, that's really the approach that, that predominates in cognitive psychology. He believed that we could reprogram ourselves, that self-image was not a set and fixed factor in our lives. Now, I would add to that, I would add to that, that, well, I think that is a profound and true insight. It also requires tremendous determination on the part of the individual. And there may be certain aspects of self-image that never go away. I mean, things that have been programmed into us, that have been concretized into our psyches, so to speak, from very, very early on, we have to be serious. Those things may linger for the rest of of our lives. I would never uh, speak to any event or possibility that I hadn't experienced myself. Uh, I can't tell your reader, your listeners in good conscience that the use of this program (laughs) will completely erase all the undesirable things from their data banks and, and result in new, more constructive self-images and self-instructions. But what I can say is that a tremendous, tremendous, even revolutionary amount of progress is possible. It really is possible. But it's only possible if you approach this program or any self-help program. I mean, I say this about every self-help program. It has to be approached with absolute passion. That, if there's a secret key to self-help, it's that you have to do it as though your life depends on it. There can be no halfway. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's what that, that, that's what critics miss. They simply they miss that one simple but vital point that they're 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 the the, the pivot point and the proving ground of every every legitimate self help program. And frankly, most of these programs that have been around for many many decades are legitimate. There's been a certain uh, posterity that's accrued to them because they have passed a certain test of human usefulness over the course of many, many generations. I'm talking about books like Alcoholics Anonymous, Think and Grow Rich, Psycho-Cybernetics, mm-hmm. How to Win Friends and Influence People. The golden oldies, so to speak, have been yeah. validated, in my view, by generations of use. And the endurance of a self-help program, like the endurance of a work of literature, it is a test of validity. So any legit self-help program uh, pivots really on the question of the individual's 
dedication. If you're absolutely starved for a morsel of food and you see the self-help program as something nourishing and you approach it as that and you stick with it for a sustained period of time with absolute commitment, changes will occur in your life. There's no question about that. Uh, People who walk away in disappointment and say, well, gee, you know, the program promised me too much. It was a scam, you know, what have you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they may be right, but I would also ask that person the question of their own dedication to the program because that's the linchpin. And I think we have to be very clear about articulating that to people. I think some of the self-help writers were clear about that. Some of the the, the great self-help writers could have been more clear. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, there's an absolute need of, of a unique kind of dedication, of a kind that you may never have summoned before in your life, but this is your life. And given how high the stakes are, I would say if you're going to approach a program like Psycho-Cybernetics or any of the others that you talk about on your show, many of which are, are very legitimate first-rate programs, the linchpin is uh, you have to approach it as though your life depends on it. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with that more. And if there's nothing that I take away from our discussion, and I know we're not done yet talking, but it's that. I think that is so key. It's so pivotal, and it's so uh, instrumental to defining and uh Roadmapping where you're going, um, and I think you have to have that. That that has to be entrenched in your DNA. I truly, truly believe that. So I thank yeah. you for yeah. for highlighting that, Mitch. That's so crucial. Um, so I'm going to refine my point. So I, I, not that I want to, you know, belabor it, but I think, you know, if I can just refine my point a little bit, going back to, you know, in terms of adopting the new. So whether we're talking about programming, reprogramming, is it? To what degree do you believe it is authentically possible to be 100% in the proper mindset to move forward and to navigate and maneuver without relinquishing the old? And and it, to relinquish the old, when I talk about deconstruction and deprogramming, uh, you know, you do, I believe, have to question the false beliefs and the false concepts and what they derived out of that has impeded your ability to truly move forward. Because if you don't understand the problem, how do you solve the problem? Right. Yeah. Well, that's a good observation. And, you know, I think that in a way, all of our therapies hinge on that question. You know, how much time do you dedicate to analysis versus how much time do you dedicate to restructuring or reprogramming? Now, you know, to to a certain extent, at least in the first half of the 20th century, maybe a little bit beyond, Many therapists in our nation of various stripes believed that the two were one and the same, that if you could get to the root of where your motivations come from, the shedding of light on that process, on the formation process, would lend it, would itself be the solution in that if you could bring to light the root of your own motivations, call them traumas, call them what you will, uh, that in itself would allow you to make new and rational decisions. Uh, I'm not sure that promise came to bear fruit. You know, sometimes I think we can analyze the padlock in our psyches, so to speak, and even though we bring to light the root events that seem to predicate many of our decisions, our motivations, our relationships. I don't know, speaking as a seeker, 
mm-hmm. whether that really brings change, you know, to be honest. Um, I agree. I say that, yeah, I say that as somebody who spent five years in psychoanalysis, and I, I found it a wonderful intellectual journey, and I respected my analyst tremendously. But I don't know that the uncovering of motivations in itself leads to change. I, I challenge that that premise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I uh, because I also think our, our motivations can be very very difficult to arrive at. You know, I mean this this opens up onto another question, which is the perennial nature versus nurture debate. You know, I mean mm-hmm. we we can describe mm-hmm. a series of motivations that seem to explain certain of our actions or our attractions or our motives, but it's almost as though we hit a kind of glass ceiling at a certain point or really, to put it differently, an opaque ceiling where the analysis of events doesn't seem to provide that full disclosure of where something comes from. We seem to be born with intrinsic tastes, temperaments, proclivities, you know, People have been documenting this for a long time. You know, you'll see personality traits in infants uh, mm-hmm. from a very, very early age. You'll see mood traits. You'll see tastes. You'll see proclivities in infants from a very, very early age. So the, the unraveling of the onion of our psyches can reveal many things, but it can also place us before what, what, what feels like a locked box sometimes. Uh, and where is the key to that box? It's hard to devise a key for something when we don't ultimately know the secrets of human nature. I mean, look, if you ask a, a room full of scientists, therapists, cognitions, people who make it their business to study human motives, to define thought, define awareness, define consciousness – you will get a bevy of different answers, some of them very contradictory and very confounding. Um, physicians have been studying the question of addiction for well over 125 years. Uh, there's still no real consensus as to precisely what an addiction is, what, what triggers an addiction. We can all agree that it's some sort of compulsive, automatic action uh, some sort of craving that seems to overtake all other considerations, including survival mechanisms. But where it comes from precisely, is it conditioned? Is it inborn? You know, what, what, what are the conditions under which it's alleviated are still matters of debate. It, it's difficult to define the term consciousness itself. There's no consensus uh, among anyone from religious seekers to brain scientists around that term and then you start to get into questions of materialism versus non-materialism and you know these are these are philosophical divides that I don't think are going to uh, close anytime mm-hmm. so you know the, 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 I think every reasonable person would say of course you know there needs to be some deconstruction in one's life there needs to be some search for root motives at the back of our behaviors, but there is a point at which that search leads us into a a kind of hall of mirrors where it's not very clear what's coming from where and where the observer is and where the image being observed is, because there 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 is still and probably always will be a mystery at the heart of human nature. What makes our what makes our thoughts what they are? 
Where do we come from? Are we products of gray matter? Is there a non-physical aspect to the mind, which I certainly believe that there is? Uh, what are we inborn with? What What is temperament? What is mood? What, what are these things that we seem to come into this physical world with? And where do they come from? Uh, the writer Hans Holzer made an mm. interesting observation, which is this. If you believe in reincarnation, it's a kind of Oakham's razor solution to the whole thing. Nothing seems to explain all these confounding traits of human nature, the ones that seem resistant to therapy and analysis than the idea that we were born with traits from somewhere else. That was his comment on reincarnation. I'm not necessarily endorsing it, but if one wants to cut to the simplest uh, possible thesis, I thought that that looked to me like a decent candidate since some of humanity's oldest religions believe in reincarnation and we all seem to carry around traits that are resistant to analysis. His reasoning was, well, look, you know, it, it, it is a decent argument on behalf of some uh, previous baggage that we enter this life with. So I just thought that was an interesting observation. But it highlights how difficult it is to get at these problems. So mm -hmm. I think this is a very long way of saying I agree with you. <laughs> Construction <laughs> and character analysis is is vitally important. You know, I don't think any mm -hmm. reasonable person would, would say we can afford to neglect that. But there is a point at which it puts us in front of a deeper mystery. And and that mystery is, is, is a ponderable, but not necessarily something that's going to be an agent for change. The agent for change then has to start to come through these efforts at rearranging one's psyche, which, which can be spiritual in nature. You'll find that, for example, within the Alcoholics Anonymous program, of which I'm a tremendous admirer and endorser. Or if one is of a more secular bent, and that's a determined path, or if one just is comfortable with Maltz's program and likes his, his view on the world, psychocybernetics provides a kind of secular uh, program that, that one can use to, to rearrange the psyche. So there's a certain point at which you know, we have to begin to act before we have all the answers, because the answers, frankly, all the answers may not disclose themselves. So there's a point at which I think that, that the, the, the search reaches, reaches a place where it becomes ponderous and a program of action, a dedicated program of action, is what has been made available to us. You say potato, I say potato. You say tomato, I say tomato. <laughs> so basically, plant the seed, grow the potato, eat the damn potato. It's all about action. Yeah. I, I truly it's, believe It's important, that. right. Right. I mean, one has to know the soil conditions. When does it rain? What are the seasons? What what seeds do best? I mean, there's a lot of research there, but yes, I mean the the, the act of sowing and and and, and reaping uh, is it's absolutely vital. I don't think it can be analysis alone. No, I I totally agree, and I think it really does come down to momentous action and the commitment to take fierce action and to hone it every single day, whatever it is that we're talking about that speaks to you personally. Uh, to the listeners, to yourself, Mitch, to myself, uh, you know, because we can think ourselves into the ground. We can dissect things uh, till the cows come home. We can churn things yep. over, overanalyze. But at the end of the day, an idea is only an idea unless you take action and it flourishes into something bigger, a dream, a goal, a philosophy, a cure, whatever. So yes. I, 
so I just want to say, Mitch, being cognizant of time, we're approaching the bottom of the hour, five minutes remaining. So I want to give you an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find you, contact you, should they have other questions or other things that you're uh, pumping out that people would be interested in further learning about. How can they find you? Sure. Uh, I'm super easy to find. Just throw my name, Mitch Horowitz, into Google. It'll take you to my website. My email is there. There's all kinds of links there that'll take you to articles, videos, uh, links to the books I've written. Um, you can find the, this deluxe edition of Psycho-Cybernetics uh, from any online bookseller, any brick-and-mortar bookseller. You can buy it digitally on Kindle or iTunes. Uh, it's 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 a book that 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 I think you'll find enormously rewarding uh, if you're interested in reading my overall assessment of the different self-help and positive mind philosophies. One of my most recent books is called One Simple Idea. Uh, that's a, a history of this positive mind movement. Maxwell Maltz and many many other figures are in that book, along with some practical ideas that I offer in your own search for using the methods of the mind to improve your life, improve the, the lives of others around you. You can find links to all of that on my website. And if you are interested in dropping me a line, uh, feel free to. You'll hear back from me. Very good. Very quickly, Mitch, before we have to wrap up here and I uh, properly say goodbye to the listeners, how do you live fearlessly? What does that mean to you? That's a wonderful question. Um, I think I suppose at this point in my life, living fearlessly to me means Acting means being active and effortful and turning a page by the physical act of turning a page. You know, there's a certain degree of fear and anxiety that's inherent in everything that we do. We wonder, will people accept us? Will people be warm to us? Will people be welcoming? Will they be rejecting? Those anxious feelings, uh, depending on your personality are going to be felt with a greater or lesser intensity, but I don't think they're ever going to fully go away. The important thing at a certain point in life is turning the page, taking the step, um, sending the message, putting oneself out there. There's a tremendous set of faculties that become available to us upon initiation of action. So I would say my I have an act of fearless living today or if I share one with my neighbor, to be act. It's vitally important to yes. act and faculties will become available to you. Beautiful. Love it. Well, Mitch, I can't thank you enough. It's been fantastic. I'm grateful to you for both our two interviews, and perhaps we bring you thank back you. again when there's other things uh, that are flourishing and on the horizon for you that you would wish to impart and share with our listening audience. would love to have you. You're great to talk with and connect with. Uh, to the listening thank audience, you. I want to thank you once again for taking time out of your schedule for joining us here. Uh, my name is Lisa McDonald. I'm your host of Living Fearlessly with the Contact Talk Radio Network. We go live every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. want to wish everybody a fantastic day, a great, safe weekend. Love and gratitude to all. Take care and all my best. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. Visit her at lisamcdonaldauthor.com.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.